welcome to Wood Talk for woodworkers by woodworkers. Now, here are three guys who, if combined, would make one hell of a woodworker. Mark, Matt, and Shannon. All right, welcome to Wood Talk number 160 for December 7th, 2013. On today's show, we're talking about cool-looking finishes, table saw residue, monotonous woodworking, best practices at the table saw, plugging holes, clogging dust collectors, not intentionally, I should say unclogging dust collectors. <laughs> because we plug the hole <laughs> yeah. in the dust collector. <laughs> Righto. Uh, planning your cuts strategically. And uh, before we get to all that good stuff, let's hear a quick word from our sponsors. Today's show is supported by Festool helping woodworkers get better results in less time and with less mess to clean up afterwards. Visit them online at festoolusa.com. All right. Well, our good buddy Matt is not going to be here. He's uh, gallivanting somewhere doing something with Steel City Tools and some event that they're having there. And uh, I guess they're feeding him and taking him to sporting events and all kinds of stuff. So he's very busy right now. Look out, saw stop. <laughs> What's up with that? Did you ever give Matt food? Nope. <laughs> and that explains a lot. So uh, <laughs> if you see a new Steel City table saw in Matt's shop, you know why, because they gave him steak. <laughs> it's just food. That's all it takes. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> That's how I got my friendship with him. I sent him like a, a steak of the month club and suddenly we're best buddies. Hey, you know, speaking of Matt, um, at, the, at the, what was that thing called? That conference, the Woodworking in America conference. Oh, that We one. had the Wood Talk meetup. Yeah. Aaron Marshall had procured a whole bunch of Matt Wooby hats <laughs> um, and he handed them out to everybody. It's awesome. I got to tell you, I broke that puppy in shoveling snow last night. That thing oh, is really? awesome. So you hung on to yours. I forgot mine. Oh, totally. Oh, I, I was I was channeling Matt Vanderlist. <laughs> no, well, not the shoveling part, but <laughs> I, the, treat, uh, I treated mine like it was like a birthday hat. You just throw it in the wet, on the garbage <laughs> on the way out. Yeah. You know? <laughs> probably pretty sweaty by the end of that. Yeah. That meetup. But oh, very yeah, cool. was, I, I, kudos to the, the Matt Vanderlist Wooby. Yeah. Yeah. It definitely was warm which clearly is why I have no use for one. All right, let's move into what's on the bench. I'll go first. Um, I've been polishing, polishing my little butt off. I The humidor finish on it is a lacquer finish. And for something like that, really, really small object of beauty like that, I can see giving it that high gloss finish that, that really isn't very practical for furniture and typical furniture that you would put in the house. Um, so this, uh, this is one of the rare times that I've gone through the whole process of uh, leveling the finish, bringing it up through the grits, and then using polishing compounds and actually polishing that sucker up to a, a super deep gloss. And um, it's a it's a fun process. Have you ever done that before? Um, only probably about as far as you posted a picture on Facebook, mm-hmm. like before it had, you know, the, the two or three week waiting time to cure. Right. That's about as far as I've gone. Gotcha. It's just never really needed to go beyond that. So yeah. what, how does it look differently, I guess. Well, the interesting thing is off the gun. I mean, if you're really good with your, with your gun and you've got your finish, uh, calibrated in the gun and everything is diluted just right. Um, best of conditions, you can actually get a really nice finish without a whole lot of effort right off of the gun. Uh, the thing is all finish tends to have a little bit of an imperfect surface to it. So whether it's just a minor amount of orange peeling, where you just have a little bit of texture there, um, there's always something there that's not absolutely perfect. And to describe the difference, it's like you almost have to see it and feel it. It's kind of the difference between feeling like a a smooth laminate surface and then feeling a a piece of glass. Wow! Uh, It's like, it's so smooth that it's completely free of any imperfection. You know, you feel it on the surface and it almost feels like uh, the, the best way I can describe it is as if it were dipped into finish and the finish just kind of like melted onto the surface. 
Uh, so it, yeah, I mean, it's a very interesting thing. It's, I don't see it as being a very practical solution for furniture because it's like, you know, like a brand new car. The first ding you get in it is like, <laughs> <Right>. no, <laughs> uh, but it is fun to do. And but you're, you're giving it away, right? As a gift. Yes. Yeah. This is yeah, actually so. for my father. It's, it's it's his problem then. Once exactly. Yeah. You that initial it, ding. As long as you deliver it to him without yep, the dings, exactly. it's on his head. Yeah. You on. put a scratch in that thing. That's up to you to fix it. Um, the interesting thing is, it is you know because it is lacquer. It's very fixable. It's something that if you really needed oh, to, yeah. you know, you could rebuff the surface or add another coat of lacquer and try to build it up again. Um, you can definitely correct flaws in it, but I just don't see it as being all that practical. But it's a humidor. It's a it's an item of luxury. So yeah. it's something where if I'm gonna do this, this is the kind of project i'm gonna do it on so uh, lacquer lacquer's like shellac right it just mm-hmm. burns itself into the previous coats yep exactly yeah yeah uh, yeah that makes it a lot easier to repair i suppose totally and, and really this this once you get this under your belt and you understand how these abrasives work and the, the polishing compounds work this is actually something you could bring to just about any finish so i mean how many times you finish that last coat and people stress so much about you know what? Every time I put that final coat in, there's always little dust nibs or there's something right. in the surface that's not perfect. You can apply this concept to pretty much any finish. Now, granted, shellac and lacquer tend to work better because they, they're a harder finish, um, but you can do this to a polyurethane finish if you give it a couple weeks to cure up um, and you're not really going to... I wouldn't really recommend going to like a super high gloss with it. I guess you could. Um, but, but it's going to be a little trickier on the, the softer finishes. That's how you hide joinery defects. You just make it so shiny that you can't <laughs> yeah. look right at it. The reflection just blinds you as you look at it. Uh, but you, well, but you I think can. that's the key is you really have to wait like three weeks, right? Yeah. For it to be hard enough. Um, yeah, it, definitely. You know, my, my finest finish was you take the paper bag at the end and mm-hmm. you, you know, essentially buff it with a paper bag, but you know, and that's really the same. I mean, it's totally the same principle, but, but if you do wait a couple of, you know, a couple of weeks, let it cure up completely. And then you can rub it out, which always makes me giggle. (laughs) You could rub it out to any sheen you want from matte all the way up to, to high gloss. And most of us are probably going to stop somewhere in the middle at like a satin or a semi gloss. So if you have the, the materials to do this, you can make that finish absolutely flawless and perfect. And, uh, and you don't have to make sure that your last coat is perfect. It's just what you do after that last coat that really counts. Um, so something I think a lot of people should start to do more if they want that, that really perfect finish and it takes the pressure off really. I wonder too, um, like a lot of times you can, for lack of a better word, fix kind of a subpar finish by using something like a paste wax mm-hmm. over top. You can kind of even out and essentially the wax is kind of filling in some of that, mm-hmm. um, some of those pores and things like that. Sure. Um, I wonder if it makes a difference to wait before applying the wax too. It does. And I think anytime you're, cause when you're applying that wax, typically you're going to use something with at least a, maybe a little bit of an abrasive quality to it. Maybe you're using steel right. wool or like a, a white, um, Oh, what the heck are they called? They come in different colors. That's it. Yeah, the Scotch-Brite pads. Um, And that's actually going to sort of just lubricate the pad as you're abrading the surface very, very lightly. Um, So so there is is something to that, and you can kind of smooth out the surface with the wax. That's why a lot of people like to do like that oil wax finish, because by the time you're done buffing that wax into the surface, um, you've really smoothed that thing out, and it is just like, you know, as they say, baby butt smooth. I'm going to have to remember that. I'm really, you know, I, I put off finish for so long and usually finish <laughs> multiple projects at once. Right, right. But, you know, so then I'm kind of in that mode um, and, and putting it aside for three weeks or 
for me, would probably be like six months, come back and put this on. But. <laughs> Honestly, that's the hardest part. I mean, because you finish up the project, you put the last coat of finish and you go, all right, now, I mean, if it's lacquer and shellac, now I got to wait a week. And if it's poly or a wipe on poly or something, now I got to wait a couple of weeks. That's yeah. that's much easier said than done. Um, but if you can do it, you know, bring the piece into the house. You don't have to let it sit in the shop. Bring it into the house. You can even start using it because you're going to really clean up the surface after it's all said and done and uh, it might be worth it. So. All right. How about you? What's going on? Well, um, it's interesting. I've talked before about how I've never been a a big kind of tool maker. Um, Mm -hmm. We always hear, or at least I always hear from guys about, you know, you can make that cheaper or you can make that mallet or make that chisel handle or whatever. Table saw. I've just, yeah, table saw, (laughs) band saw. Um, And I've always been like, yeah, I know I could, but I'd rather build furniture. Um, So I've spent the last almost a year now actually longer when it comes to design, probably four years in designing uh, a treadle lathe, a flywheel lathe. Mm -hmm. And I've spent about the last year building lathes and working on foot-powered lathes. And uh, I remember why I don't like building tools. (laughs) They work just fine, but it's the constant fine-tuning and and crap (laughs) after the fact, you know? Um, So I'd I'd moved beyond the building of them, and I started actually making – more than just practice projects, more than pretty firewood, basically. Mm-hmm. And started in on, um, interestingly enough, a, a pedestal table, actually. Oh, the cool. shaker version of the tilt-top thing that you made, uh, whatever that was, earlier this year. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm making the um, the Pleasant Hill, or no, New Lebanon Shaker Colony uh, pedestal table as part of the hand tool school semester. Okay. So I, I started in on turning the, the column and it was like, Oh no, I need to tweak something like here on the lathe. And Oh, I need to go tweak that. <laughs> and you know what? I should really get this tool rest thing fixed up before I build into this project. And an entire weekend was just gone and I got no work <laughs> done on my project. Right. And you know, it just takes me back to the, yes, I could go and buy that Stanley number five and restore it. Or I could just pay the money and buy Lee Nielsen, hone the blade and get back to work, you know? And it just, I was, I don't know, it was about nine o'clock Saturday night. And I suddenly occurred to me that the, I was just altering my tool rest. I decided to put a a modern day tool rest in and I would have to alter the actual banjo part that the tool rest goes into. Mm -hmm. So I did that. And then it occurred to me, well, if I'm going to take the time to do this, then I should go and, and, and clean up the, um, the, the pulley that I've got. Cause it, and it was like, all right, suddenly occurred to me, I'm going to be doing this all day Sunday and yeah. I'm not going to get any of my project done. Mm-hmm. And, you know, don't get me wrong. It's fun. I mean, it is kind of cool because I built this. I built this machine and I'm I'm adding the creature comforts. I'm adding my own, you know, tool rack on the back and everything. And it's 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 got all the cool features that you wish you could buy in that machine. Sure. So, you know, that part is cool. But at the same time, I'm just not cut out for it. I just don't want to build a piece of furniture. You know, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I mean, I'm really in the same boat with you on that. And I fully respect the people who can build their own tools. And I think we've even talked about that guy who made his own uh, domino out of plywood and a router. Oh, yeah. You know, and I think it's very cool. Like the people who have that engineer's mindset who can come up with ways of doing this with uh, with much less expensive materials. Um, but it's not not something I want to do. And I, I think that it's, it's perfectly fine for people to be on both sides. But we, we can certainly marvel at what other people can accomplish. And I hope they continue to work for them safely and they can keep them calibrated. Um, but uh, just as you're describing, I would not want a, a tool that I would have to fuss with uh, so much just to keep it in, in working order for me. 
<laughs> right. And I mean, as I said, it's, it's more of kind of the, the work in progress. I mean, I think once I get these things done, there mm-hmm. won't really need to be any more of that fiddling around. But, you know, it's that break-in period yeah. uh, where you're, you don't think about um, – I didn't think about wanting to, to make the tool rest the way I've made it now until I spent 20 hours at the lathe and right. then realized I need to tweak that. Sure. Um, but – uh, well, ultimately, <laughs> the good thing is, I mean, you made the lathe, you're showing people how it was done. Other people who make their own tools are, are typically showing other people how it's done. And the good thing is for folks who are on a really tight budget um, and who are of that engineering mindset, uh, they have a way to get a reasonably decent tool that works really well. Um, oh, what's his name? Alex Alex Harris, I think. We we posted a project that he made. He, he built oh, his yeah. own bandsaw. Yeah. You know, and this is a teenager who probably doesn't have a whole lot of money to dump into woodworking now has a working bandsaw. Um, yeah, sure. If he had the money, he probably would want to go out and just buy one, but he got the experience of building one. It seems to work quite well and that's great. There's nothing wrong with that, you know? So it's, it's glad I'm glad that this is out there. <laughs> Although for people. I got to tell you, I've probably, I'm probably $350 into this treadle lathe now. <laughs> so you could have, <laughs> I mean, when you, cause there's a lot of hardware, a lot of precision hardware. Yeah. I mean, bearings are like $12 a piece. Yeah. Um, so and it becomes its, it's own like, little hobby, you know, within the hobby. So, I mean, granted, if I want an electric lathe, which I already have, but the funny thing is, is if I ever came across like a vintage, you know, 1870 Barnes treadle lathe on, on the internet, I would buy it in a heartbeat <laughs> and this lathe would be out at the curb. Of course, that would probably cost me eight grand. So never yeah. mind. That's- awesome. Good stuff. Uh, we don't have much here for the what's new section because that's Matt's job and uh, Matt's slacking off this week. So we will skip right into our kickback segment and we've got one here from Derek he said, I heard you talk about the positive reviews that Minwax Wipe on Poly has received from one of the woodworking magazines. Uh, that's um, an old fine woodworking article from several years back. Uh, it was rated as best value with a pint cost of about $6. I was at my local orange big box store today and wanted to test it out, but the price of the pint was $12. I'll try it out, but at double the price, I'd have to wonder if it's still labeled as best value anymore. Um, that's a good question. I mean, that's, these things are time sensitive, so that's a, uh, quite an old article. The inflation has caused things to uh, to go up in price. But, uh, excuse me, as I stifle a burp, uh, looking online, it actually is now comparably priced to General Finish's Armor Seal, which, which is usually considered by most to be a higher quality finish, which going back to that test that fine woodworking did kind of refutes that claim in the first place. But um, the, it's basically the same price as Armor Seal. So Armor Seal has not like doubled in price. So I wonder, you know, what it is with Minwax that maybe they just realized this stuff was uh, selling better than they expected. So let's jack up the price or is it truly the materials are, are costing more? So it's costing them more to make it. I don't know. Yeah, I'd, I'd be willing to bet they saw a gap <laughs> in the market mm-hmm. and said, ah, let's just raise a price. Yeah, there is still much, cheaper right? than the competition. Yeah, there isn't much out there. I mean, you can get like a uh, Formby's tongue oil finish, which is really just a wiping varnish, but it doesn't say that. So if you look on the shelf at Home Depot and you're looking for a wipe on polyurethane, that's all you're really going to find in, in most instances. So right. hmm, who knows, but good, good point. It's not quite the value that it used to be. So for that price, you could get yourself some sweet general finishes armor seal. All right. Uh, let's go to a voicemail kickback that we have here. Uh, this one is from Sean. Let's see what he has to say. Hey, guys. This is Sean in Colorado. Just listening to your show talking about uh, getting something to bend to different curves. Uh, my brother does a lot of architectural modeling or did when he was in school for it. And he had these uh, 
packs of sheets called styrene sheets. And he would do all sorts of curves with those. Uh, they would bend both ways. Um, that was uh, the best thing that I could think of to solve your uh, curve problems. Love the show. Thanks, guys. All right, so I've never worked with styrene uh, at all. I looked it up a little bit. It seems like it's popular in the cosplay <laughs> area for making ah, you know, various okay. things, uh, modeling and stuff like that. But I'm guessing if you can mold it and shape it and have it lock in place. Now, the, the key for us as woodworkers is once it's locked in place, is the surface rigid enough to withstand the use of a bearing-guided router bit? Right. Um, if it is, and you can lock it into, you you could see how you might be able to just take two pieces, bend them to the same curve, wait for them to solidify, and then take them apart, and now you have two complementary curves. If if that's how it works, that's great. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> if anybody actually uses styrene for anything, um, I've got a, a friend of mine who does a lot of cosplay stuff. Um, he builds guns and things like that. He probably would know. I'll have to ask him. Um, but is that any, the same as polystyrene? I don't know. Maybe that's just short for uh, polystyrene. I don't know. Not that I have anything to say about polystyrene. (laughs) Right. But it's another word, you know. (laughs) Isn't that what those peanuts are made out of for packing? I think so. Um, I'll have to to talk to, um, uh, what's his name? Yeah, you know, what's his name? And see what he says. (laughs) Cosplay guy. Cosplay guy. Um, All right, let's move into our voicemail since we're on a roll here with voicemails. We've got quite a few, surprisingly. This one here is from our good buddy, Diami. Hey guys, this is Diami from that night at the Embassy Suites at Woodworking in America. Hey I'm right now working on making a picture frame out of spalted maple. And I have a question about the finish. I don't want the typical warm amber tones you get with most finishes to warm up the wood. I'm looking for a finish that I would describe as cold or cool. I'm not sure on a tone wheel where that fits in, but I'm not looking for warm, if that makes sense. Uh, I was thinking of using an aerosol spray lacquer. But I'd like your opinions on that and see if there's a different type of finish you would recommend. I'm looking to stay with either aerosol can or rag on some sort of finish because I'm not looking to learn entirely new techniques. And I need to wrap this up by Christmas. So I'm hoping it's something that I can do quickly and efficiently. I appreciate the help. And I look forward to hearing from you. Thanks. All right. Thanks for that, Diami. Uh, I would just recommend a water-based finish. I mean, anytime somebody wants to not yellow the wood, they don't want to bring any amber or darkening of the color, usually your go-to solution is something like a water-based finish. There are also water white is usually the, the term used in the industry, water white lacquers that you can get that won't impart a whole lot of color to the surface. That's something you might consider. Uh, you may not find that in a rattle can spray format. So what I would probably recommend, Diami, is, is maybe look at like Minwax Polycrylic in the can, which you can get. Uh, at Home Depot or Lowe's, and that will come in the rattle can, and that should do the trick. It's really not going, I mean, to me, on most projects, I don't like the way this stuff looks because it looks lifeless, but it sounds like when he describes it as cold, that's exactly what he's going for for this particular project. I'm trying um, to remember um, when I was in a former life, when I was kind of doing the craft show circuit, I used a lot of lacquer because it it dried so damn fast. Yeah. Um, and there was one that I found in a spray can that um, Watco, actually, because mm-hmm. I couldn't find it at Home Depot. I had to go to Woodcraft. And, of course, I paid like $8 more a can for it there. Um, but, yeah, Watco lacquer, um, regardless, semi-gloss, gloss, or whatever, it really stayed true to the color of the wood cool. and imparted almost no color at all. But it gave you that kind of, you could get either real high gloss or that kind of just nice film finish look to it. Right. 
good deal. So, I mean, it's it's running like nine bucks a can though. So depending if he's mm. just got one frame, he should be okay. But right, yeah, those cans can get expensive after a while. But for smaller projects, they're great. Yeah. All right, uh, Demented Woodworker called in. He's got a question. Hi guys, Demented Woodworker here. It does sound better like that. Uh, a few days ago, I did a some metal mine shelves. I mean, some metal mine cabinets with shelves for my brother for storing his shoes. But I had a pro- small problem about about cutting the sheets down on the table saw. I noticed after a while that they were getting soiled up on the bottom with like black residue or something like that. Do you guys ever clean up your table saws before doing any plywood sheets? Does this come ever? Does this ever come about? Well, let me know. Thanks. Bye. Oh, hi guys. Sorry about this again. I forgot to add on the last question. And if you do clean it before you clean it, how do you ever test to see if it's clean enough that it won't soil the plywood? All right. Thanks. Bye. Okay. It's a bit of a two-parter there. Um, I don't usually have this problem. I mean, my, my tool surfaces are something that I really try to keep clean all the time. Um, so after, but I, but I never really had any residue that will only typically happen is if you're doing something that causes uh, residue. So maybe some of the melamine surface is burning up and scorching yeah. a little bit, I'm thinking, and maybe that's causing some of this black streaking that then gets transferred uh, to the material he's working with. But I know you don't use a table saw these days anymore, Shannon, but did you ever have any kind of soot or any, any sort of problems transferring crap? No, I was just thinking about that. I, I don't, don't remember ever having anything like that. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't um, really come up. I feel up. like I've, I know I've cut melamine because all the cabinets in my shop were made out of melamine. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, never ran into that. Or if I did, I was making shop cabinets and I didn't care. <laughs> right. So I put that on the bottom side, but I don't remember seeing any kind of staining like that. I just wonder if maybe he's just got some sort of solvent or something. Um, did you by chance you know, sharpen something near your table saw or use a file. Is there any kind of metallic swarf somewhere in there? Mm -hmm. Um, I would clean it up and then, you know, make some tests to make sure that goes away. If it comes back, I wonder if like something is rubbing like in the table saw itself. Like that is possibly, uh, that's true. Yeah. That could be bad news, like a belt or something that's, uh, right. And it's, it's putting out, you know, gunk, to begin with. Yeah, that would suck. Um, the other thing I was thinking is sometimes maybe like a sticker can sometimes cause a, a little sticky oh, mark. Yeah. And then and as things stick to it over time, it just sort of spreads and gets gooey on the surface. That can certainly uh, cause some problems too. But ultimately, as long as you keep the surface of the table you know, clean, I usually clean it with a little min- mineral spirits and then I wax it. Obviously, this goes into the whole rust prevention conversation that we're not going to get into. Uh, there's lots of things you could do to prep that surface. But as long as it's kept fairly clean and lubricated with wax, most things won't really stick to it to begin with. So I think the key is to find out exactly what the source is of that stuff and maybe, you know, nip it in the bud, stop it before it gets on the surface. So you don't have to worry about it at all. Um, and I don't really, because I don't have that problem to answer the second part of his question. I'd never really have to do a test piece because it shouldn't usually be a problem. If I see uh, stuff that's not wood colored, you know, like something other than wood dust, then I know there's a problem. So I'm going to address that first. Uh, okay. Let's go to Jonathan's question. Question about monotony. Hello, gentlemen. This is Jonathan Stepinski from Maryland. Uh, I'm currently working on a project that involves cutting 600 mortise and tenon joints, and it's getting rather Mm -hmm. monotonous. 
<laughs> I was wondering if uh, you guys have any tales of monotony in the workshop. Uh, maybe help me pass the time while I'm listening to it. Uh, that's all. Thank you. Time to make well, the donuts. Blurg. 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 In, in this Christmas season, Mark, you want to go first with that monotony story? <laughs> um, why? <laughs> the uh the the dreaded advent calendar that you had to make oh, for nicole that oh ooh, yeah that's up there <laughs> i didn't even think about that one uh well first, blocked that one out yeah i did that's a bad memory well for, first of all i've seen jonathan posting on facebook or twitter or something like that and i've seen all these these uh parts that he's making what what is he making yeah seriously what I are you making I don't know. I have to, I'll have to ask him what he's making. Um, but yeah, so I'll say the other thing first. Um, the one that came to mind initially to me is anytime I do a green and green project, there's typically like 40 or 50 minimally 40 or 50 ebony plugs that need to be cut to very specific sizes rounded over. Like once you have the material cut, uh, then you got to round over the edges and buff them up and cut them off and then repeat that is one of the most monotonous parts of woodworking that I've ever experienced. And, and my <laughs> sickness for like, I love green and green that keeps putting me back in that position. Every time I do it, when I get to the ebony plug part, I'm just like, Oh, please anything, anything but this <laughs> kill me now. Like, can I please hire somebody to just sit here and do all these? Uh, but no one, I mean, once you get rolling, it's not that bad. Um, the thing that Shannon brought up previously is if you've uh, been um, you know, watching The Wood Whisperer for a while, you might have seen a couple of years ago, I made an advent calendar. And when you think about making like 24, 25 little tiny doors and have each one of them swing like on a some hinge system, like in theory, it's like, oh, okay, it's not too bad. But then you get down to the actual like how am I going to do this? These are like quarter inch thick pieces of plywood. How am I going to get each one of these to hinge in this little tiny one by one opening, or it's like one, it's an inch and a half opening square. So yeah, that was not fun at all. And that was, yeah, an exercise in, um, uh, patience for sure. Yikes. Yeah. I, I just remember watching that video going, yeah, I won't be making that ever. <laughs> it's one that and- like, as I'm making it, I'm like, please don't ever make this. You know, like I, I realize I'm doing a video on it because I committed to it and here I am, but I don't recommend doing this. <laughs> like, please don't. This is a, a warning to you. <laughs> How about you? Anything tedious? Um, well, I mean, again, back in the, when I was doing uh, craft show type things, I would, you know, turn 400 pens and I would make, you know, a bunch of little boxes, probably 50, 60 little boxes. <laughs> and, um, the prep, the finished prep of that. I just, I wanted to blow my brains out, you know, <laughs> you know, sand a little box here and sanding's no fun as it is, but it yeah. would, it's the same, you sand the lid to a box 50 times, the same little lid. Yep. Um, the same thing when, when it came to turning all the pins, the turning part was fun, but anybody who's ever turned a pen realizes that the turning part is like two minutes, <laughs> right? you know, and it takes you, we'll say 20 minutes to make the pen, mm-hmm. you know, drilling out the blank and gluing in the brass tube. And I had, had set up an assembly line so that I could do all the turning at once because it went so fast. And, and frankly, there's kind of that warm up, warm down period with turning. Mm-hmm. So I didn't want to stop and go drill another blank and everything because I, I kind of start turning cold again. So I made this, um, took a piece of two by two by four plywood, a sheet from a Home Depot, mm-hmm. and I drilled it with a whole bunch of little metal rods that I could slip pin blanks onto to keep them in order, keep the grain matched and everything. And mm-hmm. I filled it and there was something like 275 
pins on that board. Wow. Um, and I went and drilled every blank and glued in the brass tube for every single one of those and slotted it on there. And uh, then, you know, later, then I worked my way through. It was really efficient once I got through that, the turning part. But yeah, the uh, getting prepared for that was was hell. Yeah. I think anytime you, you batch things out, that's when you're walking into this territory. Like, yeah, making a couple of pens sounds great. And you're like, oh, making a couple, I may as well make a dozen. And right. that time really multiplies quickly. Uh, all right, let's move into our email. We've got a few and we'll plow through them. I got one here from Mike. He says, I started woodworking as a power tool only kind of guy, but after having my table saw try to kill me a few times, I switched after a few months and went almost completely unplugged. I really enjoy hand tool woodworking, but still have my power tools. As usual, I took on too many projects to finish before Christmas, so I have to use power tools in order to finish on time. My question relates specifically to my old nemesis, right? Nemesis, the table saw, anemone. Uh, it's necessary to turn this or is it necessary to turn the saw off between every cut? If I'm making repetitive cuts, I turn the saw off between every cut. But as a result, I end up turning the saw on and off over and over again. Is this bad for it? Should I just leave it running as a professional safety manager? I do tend to take things too far sometimes. All right. Well, here, here's what I think. I don't think you necessarily need to turn that saw off, especially between cuts. Uh, what you really need to do is, and this is something that goes for any tooling really is, but especially around power tools is you really need to raise your awareness of the situation. And that means surveying the entire table saw surface, knowing where your uncut parts are, knowing where you're going to put the cart, the, the parts after the cut, have a workflow in place that puts your mind right into the game. Like you don't want to be thinking about the next step. Think about the the thing you're working on right now. And that's it. And, and I think you can arrange everything on a table saw for safe, repetitive cutting, as long as you have this workflow and it minimizes the amount of time you're reaching over the blade. You should never be yeah. reaching over the blade, right? So if you can manage to do that, I think it's perfectly fine because it isn't a great idea to, to turn a motor on and off over and over. Um, the thing I will say though, is safety is, uh, you know, there are rules, but there it's a very personal thing in a lot of cases. And if something makes you uncomfortable and you feel safer turning that saw on and off, um, I'd rather have you feel safer and then replace that motor after a few years because you've, uh, you jacked it up. Um, if, if that makes you feel safer, I would rather do that even though it's not as good for the tool. Um, because ultimately safety is, is a line you have to draw in the sand for yourself. But yeah. I, I leave the saw on, um, a lot of the time when I'm in, in the process, but if I have to walk like more than a foot away from the saw or turn my eyes away from the blade for any length of time, that's when I turn it off. Um, which is why you kind of make this like work bubble around you where you do everything within this bubble. And as soon as you're outside of that bubble, that's when you got to turn that saw off. So that's how, that's how it goes for me. I can say, and I, I said this to him in, in an email response, um, it, it's being very, very aware of, you know, if you're making those multiple cuts, where is the off cut going? Mm -hmm. um, and as long as you've got, you know, an outfeed table and, and you're funneling all that crap away from the blade, you're fine. But you also need to pay attention that it doesn't vibrate its way back into totally. the blade. Totally, yep. Um, and I've had, I've had two kickback issues in my life and it's always been because I've been one of those, I've been been in one of those batching type modes mm -hmm. where I'm doing repetitive cuts over and over again. And, and, you know, I wasn't turning the saw off in between. So yeah, yeah it's, it's just, 
it's good that he's aware of it, but I think as a safety manager, he's probably going to be overkill anyway. Yeah. And you bring up a good point because it's those repetitive cuts that you tend to turn your brain off. Um, maybe you're thinking about like what's for lunch or, you know, something else goes on your mind because your body doesn't have to worry about it. It's a repetitive motion. So you could do it without thinking too much about it, but it's the lack of thinking about it that causes those little tiny accidents that could turn into really, really bad situations. So, uh, all right, you're up next. Well, let's see. We had, um, Jason from Smelly Gilroy. Hey, you. He says, I have a plug question for you. I'm building a loft bed for my son, and I'm going to use threaded inserts to attach the side rails. I'm planning on installing the threaded inserts from the outside of the corner post, then plugging the holes. The hole will be half inch diameter by approximately three quarter inch deep. Should I use a tapered or straight plug cutter? If possible, can you recommend a specific plug cutter? Uh, any other plug cutting words of wisdom? <laughs> um, plugs are made from African mahogany. The posts are maple. Thanks a lot. Um, well, the first thing I have to question is, do you want to plug those holes? Um, typically with uh, bed bolts, um, they're there specifically so that you can take the bed apart. Um, beds are big. <laughs> beds don't generally fit through doors. So if you assemble this and you're attaching, so generally the headboard and the sideboard are permanently assembled together. The side rails go in through bed bolts and they're designed with a captive nut or something like that. Or some of the, uh, maybe the cheaper ones have that hook and latch type thing so that you can take it apart and then you can essentially pack it flat and get it out of the room. So I know this is for his son, so I don't really know how big it is, but I would caution him against permanently attaching those side rails to the bed. So that being said, um, Plugging holes. Um, I've actually always preferred a tapered plug cutter. Mm -hmm. Um, Every time I've used the um, constant diameter, um, it either doesn't fit or I end up doing a lot of um, kind of chamfering with the chisel on the bottom. Um, You get that hydraulic pressure that wants to push it out of the hole too when you put glue in there. And it just ends up being more trouble than it's worth. Mm -hmm. The tapered plug allows you to put the glue in. You can hammer it in and you don't have the um, pressure pushing back and it comes up tight because it acts as that little wedge and it's just so much easier to install. Um, as far as specific, you know, brand now I, I have one that I bought at home Depot. It's probably not high quality, but it does the job. Right. I have one from Lee Valley that I use and I'm, I'm right there with you to me. It's tapered or nothing. Uh, tapered plugs yeah. are so much more forgiving. Every hole you make, like, yeah, you might have a, a it says three quarter or three eighths of an inch, but is it really three eighths? It might be just a little bit oversized or right. um, run out in your, uh, in your drill might cause it to be a slightly oversized hole. And those tapered plugs just make that not an issue anymore just because you got a little tapering action. Um, I'm a little confused by his description here. He's putting the threaded inserts in on the corners from the outside. So he's plugging the outside but it's still accessible from the inside, which is where the, the, the part is coming in, right? The, the side rail is coming in from the inside of that corner post. Right. So I'm a little bit confused by the way he described it. I don't think he's doing anything to, that's going to prevent him from uh, assembling or disassembling this thing in the future. But I'm not, I'm not 100% sure why he isn't attaching the threaded insert on the inside face of that corner uh, rather than the, the outside of that corner post. You see what oh, I mean? See, I thought he was talking about 
plugging the hole that the actual bolt goes through, not See, the insert. I've, I but almost no, feel he does like say insert, doesn't he? Yeah, it's almost like he's drilling a through hole from the outside. Then he's putting in the threaded insert, and then he's going to cap off the back of the threaded insert with uh, with this tapered plug. The bolt right. would then come in from the other side. Um, and it would hit the threaded insert all the way in, like deeply embedded inside that leg. I'm just trying yeah. to figure out why why he's doing it that way. Hmm. Okay. Well, maybe <laughs> I have no idea. Now yeah. that I read that, yeah, because then that doesn't make sense. It's a little confusing. Um, also, I'd like to know does does when you live in Gilroy, does your house start to smell like garlic? Like if you go outside of Gilroy. Do your clothes smell like garlic? I mean, I've driven through <laughs> People there. Go, you're from Gilroy, aren't you? Yeah, it's a garlicky place. Uh, okay, we've got another one here from Jim. He says, when I'm using my jointer milling a face, I have to stop every couple of boards to unclog my dust collector right where the Y attaches to the collector itself. From the jointer to the dust collector, it's pretty much a straight shot of flex hose with no severe bends. My jointer is set for a pretty light pass as well. My dust collector is a two-horsepower Harbor Freight model, uh, filter bag on top, plastic bag on the bottom for larger dust and chips. Maybe I'm dealing with something that uh, can be expected from a less expensive dust collector? Question. Uh, you know, this is something that I think might be a a common issue with uh, with some of these dust collectors, these portable units. Um, so I have two recommendations. One is a little more severe than the other, but let's start with the easy one. Get yourself a separator system. Um, if you can put a separator like the, Th- the Thine separator or one of the pre-made ones, Rockler has one, Clearview has one, and uh, Oneida has one. There's a bunch of them out there. Put one of these little separator cyclone dealy boppers in there before, and what that does is it catches all of those bigger um, those bigger shavings and things that are clogging up your system. They'll drop into the bucket, and only the fine dust will get into the bag of your dust collector. That actually, I think, is the easiest. It's going to, I mean, you could build your own if you want to, but um, if you do buy it, it's only going to cost about 70 bucks, and it's a pretty good upgrade to your system because now, most of the time, you'll just be emptying that bucket as opposed to emptying out the bags on your dust collector. Um, so that's a great upgrade. It's a great solution, um, and it doesn't require cutting anything like my next suggestion, uh, <laughs> which would be if you look at the inlet there before it gets into the impeller, uh, there's a little grid, uh, a mesh. Well, it's like a grill that's in there. And the idea is that that's going to protect any large pieces of material from impacting the impeller, which is a great idea. The problem is when you're pl- doing like the face of a board, you get a lot of longer lighter wispy shavings and those especially from the face of a board they tend to be full you know full width or close to it so what you wind up with is stuff like confetti that will get caught up on those little grill bars in there so a very invasive solution is to remove the grill and that would involve just cutting it out so uh, although i don't want you to uh, damage your warranty or or you know run the risk of um, sucking anything up large <laughs> in there and having <laughs> it hit the impeller um, it's, it's something that you can do that should boost the performance. But to me, a separator is really the best solution because you're just adding something. You're not, uh, you're not doing anything to damage the, uh, the current unit. So, uh, the, the only other thing that I'll say, and I completely agree with all of that and your solution is much more long-term when I had my grizzly joiner, I discovered that, um, there would always be a little bit of material that kind of built up inside the chute. Uh, whether it was um, when I turned off the joiner and I turned off the dust collector, mm-hmm. kind of did it at the same time. So the suction drops off and the dust collector still, or excuse me, the joiner is still spinning. There's still kind of junk floating around inside the cabinet and then it would settle. Um, so every time I would start up 
the dust collector again when it was attached to the joiner there would be this like whoop noise as yeah. like a whole bunch of crap came out of the joiner at once mm-hmm. and it would inevitably clog it up you know it wasn't that the chips themselves were that big but they all came at once yeah. because there was a little bit left over in there um so the only other thing i would say is turn off the machine and let the dust collection run for you know 30 more seconds mm-hmm. while however long it takes for your machine to come to full rest to pull all that junk through because that can be enough and you're thinking hey it's clogging up all the time and actually it just clogged up as soon as you turned it on right um and it's collected right there on that grate because the grate will will stop it all yeah, too that much being said i went and cut the grate out of mine anyway <laughs> right and now it'll suck up a baseball. <laughs> yeah, actually, it's come close a couple of times. Um, now, if I can, if I can generate an interrupt because it's the 21st century. Um, I uh, messaged Jonathan on Facebook about his 600 mortise antennas. Oh, okay, cool. This is way cool. This commission is for um, a Chinese acrobat act, like chair stacking, where they stack the chairs into a pyramid and they like balance on them. Oh, really? Yes. So these are chairs that like people's lives are going to depend on. Yes. Good luck with that. That is the coolest commission <laughs> I've ever heard of. It's 30 acrobatic chairs for a chair balancing act. That's awesome. <laughs> he just tagged me in a photo on Facebook too, of like a bunch of guys doing handstands on a chair pyramid. So that is coolest sweet. commission ever. Totally. Totally. He wins. He wins the game of woodworking. That's awesome. Cool. Uh, let's see here. We've got uh, another one here from David. He says, I have a rough cut piece of Cortison beach that's approximately eight feet by uh, eight feet long by eight inches wide. I want to cut it into strips that will be about three and a half feet long. How should I or how would you cut the wood? My choices appear to be uh, rip each piece from the length, which would eventually leave me with a board approximately eight feet long but only four inches wide. Or cross cut it in half first, then rip the laminations, leaving me with a four foot long board that is eight inches wide. As I don't have a use for the remaining board at the moment, I'd be interested in uh, which you would consider to be the most useful to keep for a future project. Now, I specifically dropped this in here because I was curious, you know, coming from the perspective of uh, a hand tool guy mm-hmm. and uh, a hybrid guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> Officially. Yeah. <laughs> trying trying to not label you here. Um, although I just did, didn't I? Uh, sort of, yeah. The, the unlabel becomes the label. <laughs> right. Now, I'm assuming what he's talking about here is if he, if he were to rip the full length, he's taking his strips and kind of stacking them along the length. So he's getting two strips per rip and mm-hmm. then cross-cutting them later. Because um, if he's not, I would recommend that. Um, but I guess the, the more important question is how do you, when you break down stock – are you thinking more about the project at hand or are you thinking more about what can I do with the leftover? And, and that's really, I've found myself getting into that situation where, Oh, well, what could I do with this leftover piece? And I unknowingly sacrifice, um, grain or continuity or quality of wood by trying to cram all my parts into the smallest pieces I can. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Assuming that all that is taken care of and it's all good and he's getting good quality grain and everything, um, I would cross cut first because I'm ripping by hand. And if <laughs> right. I don't have to rip an eight foot long piece, um, you know, and granted, I may be making four, four foot long rips. So it's all the same linear footage anyway, but an eight foot consistent rip, it, it, it wears you out. Uh, and the, when you, it's not about being tired, although being tired is no fun. When you start to get tired, your technique falls apart. And suddenly the cut becomes out of plumb or it moves off your line. You screw things up. Um, 
so I try not to take any cut that's going to be so long that I'm going to, you know, wear out and, and make the cut crappy by the end of it. Right. So I generally will cross cut. That's the first thing I do before I do any ripping. Um, what about you, Mark? You know, for me, it's more because, I, you know, fatigue is not so much an issue, but it, it, I think about what I typically use in my project and very infrequently do I really go, oh, I could use an, a, a full eight foot board. Uh, very few of my projects ever fall into that length category. Yeah. So so for easy storage and the fact that I probably won't need it to be that long in the future, uh, I usually do cut mine down cross cut first, um, which makes it a lot easier to rip. Uh, you know, when you rip that board too at eight feet long, chances are that thing's not going to be straight anyway. Yeah. And then you let it sit there for a few months and go to use it into your next project. You know what the first thing you're probably going to do when you go to use that board is cut it, cross cut it <laughs> you know, to, yeah, probably. to something shorter. Uh, and he yeah, might be able... A, it's a good point. I remember having to make my my bench, uh, my workbench, mm -hmm. and like jointing and ripping an eight foot long board yeah. sucks. <laughs> yeah, it's it's actually very tricky to do. Um, even if you got like nice long, uh, wings on your, your jointer. Um, so yeah, so I, I personally would just break it down because that's what the most usable functional material in my shop starts at typically is something four foot and under very, very seldom do I have anything that's much longer than that. Um, most of the time I actually do that cross cut at the lumber yard, right? I don't have a truck. You know, <laughs> it makes I've it easier to transport into a hatchback or whatever. If you look at my lumber rack in the shop, I think there are six pieces in there that are longer than six feet long. Mm -hmm. And Lord knows how many pieces that are in the four foot range. Cause most furniture parts are that long. Exactly. Yeah. And that's actually a lot of the justification. Remember what we were having discussions about how big your bench needs to be or, or actually how flat your bench needs to be. And a lot of the conversation surrounded, the truth is you really only need like a four foot by, you know, 16 inch section of your bench to be flat because that's right. typically about all you're ever going to work with. All right. Uh, let's move into our reviews. We do have a review today. Uh, but if you want to leave us a review on iTunes, you can do that. Just look us up in the store, click on ratings and reviews, and you can ask Matt why he's too darn good to be on the show today. <laughs> Jerk. Um, and we'd also like to thank Dust for Brains 2000 who had this to say, beware, these guys will have you running out to buy some mysterious substance called shellac and you'll be chopping down trees like a beaver to make something out of wood. Very inspirational, highly motivational, and just downright cool. Keep up the awesome work, guys. Well, thanks for that Dust for Brains. We appreciate it. And also the show is sponsored by Festool at FestoolUSA.com. They got some great tools. Check them out. Uh, recurring donors, we'd always uh, always like to thank you guys for helping us out. Just go to woodtalkshow.com and look in the left-hand column. You'll see some links for recurring and one-time donations, which we always appreciate. And I want to get into the habit of mentioning our t-shirts, if you'd like to pick one of those up. Super high quality, not all that expensive, at twwstore.com is where you'll find those. And Shannon, how about you give them that contact info and we'll get out of here. I'm so nervous. <laughs> oh, don't be, don't be. <laughs> Think of, think of the audience completely naked. Oh, Lord. Uh-oh. No. <laughs> well, if you have comments, questions, or a topic suggestion, you have a couple of ways you can contact us. You can leave us a voicemail on Skype. Our username is WoodTalkOnline. Go figure, right? Mm -hmm. Call our voicemail line at 623-242-5180, or you can email us at WoodTalkOnline at gmail.com, or, or you can leave us a comment on the WoodTalk Facebook page. Uh, if you're looking for show notes or downloads from today's show or previous episodes, you can find them at woodtalkshow.com. Beautiful. Yes. Beautiful. Well done, sir. 
Ew. All right. And uh, make sure you um, join us next week when we'll have Matt back. You'll have so much Matt, it'll make you sick to your stomach. So send in your Steel City questions because Matt will be <laughs> an expert right. by then. He'd <laughs> be very well versed on. He's reading the manual in his hotel room right now. <laughs> nice. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. And we'll catch you next time. Have a good one. about this and other shows, visit frogpants.com. Audio program so good, it's like you're there.